I remember when I was really young, I would look up to what GC used to be, and I wasn't filled with a longing to go there because Ivy was covering all the trees. There were no trails in the first place in there. I didn't even think about going in there. And I think we started to view GC in that forest as more of a person. Like, what is happening? Like, this person is dying. Like, how can we help this? How can we help this growing community? How can we integrate more people to enjoy this space and what it's supposed to be? And I think that's where the project started and starting to take down all the ivies, starting to make trails, starting to build a new community. Now there's such a huge community of people that have worked together for so long and have now enjoyed so much time. This community that we have helped build has transformed this forest into a really beautiful and loving place. Welcome to the Earth Keepers Podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community that includes our spiritual lives. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers Podcast. On the Earth Keepers Podcast, we talk a lot about transforming damaged or neglected spaces into thriving ecologies that benefit both the human and more than human members of the community of creation. Way back in episode two, for example, we talked to Tomino Martelli about how neighbors turned an unused parking lot into a thriving community garden for refugees. In episode 40, we spoke with Casa Adobe in Costa Rica about how folks work together there to restore a neglected region of jungle and to provide community access to a nearby river. More recently, in episode 78, Nick Rubesh and John Wayne Seisler told the story of their community's efforts to rewild the section of church property that was once just an unused stretch of lawn. In all these cases, it took a whole community of earthkeepers working together to accomplish the work of healing and transforming the land. Well, in this episode, we'll hear how the de Young family was the catalyst to engage whole neighborhoods in the work of reviving and repairing a 43-acre forest called Chisti Green Space in Seattle. And just a note of explanation, the Beacon Hill area of Seattle, where the Chisti Green Space is located, is under a flight path to a major nearby airport. So, you hear a lot of background noise, even so, we decided to have our conversation outdoors to give you a sense of the realities of this very urban space. De Young family, it's so good to be with you. I wonder if you could help our listeners out and tell us a little bit about yourselves, introduce yourself, and talk about what is interesting in your life these days. Orion? My name's Orion De Young. I'm the son of Joel and Mary, and I've been helping work with the Chasey Green space since I was a little kid and have enjoyed every moment spending time in the forest and how it's grown over the years. How old are you now? I'm 17. 17. Anna? My name is Anna DeYoung, and I'm also the daughter of Mary Joel. I have been working in the woods also since I was born, 
And it's been a privilege to have these woods available right in our backyard. And it's always been a safe and calm space to be. Mary? Hi, I'm Mary. And yeah, so fun to be in conversation with you, Forrest, and my husband and my kiddos. And you're currently all listening into our backyard. So we're all looking at each other and we have dappled sunlight coming in through these trees, but we also have airplanes overhead. (laughs) And Oh, I'm just thinking about a summer that has brought so much joy to our family. We walked through drying wetsuits on our way to this conversation. So there's been lots of surfing going on and lots of enjoyment of water this summer. Joel, how about you? Yeah, I'm Joel DeYoung. My kids are calling me BDJ these days, Big Daddy Joel. (laughs) We're in the backyard where I also work converted the back shed into a workspace during COVID. So just coming out to chat with you during that break. But that seems to be part of our story is trying to integrate our lifestyle and our dreams into where we live and and to this place. Yeah. And we could be inside if we wanted to be, but I think it's going to be interesting to hear all the ambient noises of this place. And if we're lucky, the planes will be quiet enough to hear the chickens, which are not so far away from us here. So, Joel, let's start with you. We're mostly talking about the Chiefs Green Space Restoration Project, and I'm wondering if you could talk about what that project is and what's happening in and around it these days. Yeah, so it's a restoration and trails project that's converting about 43 acres of green space right here in South Seattle into an accessible place where people can access nature and recreate right here in the city. And so one of the unique things also about this project is that it's Seattle's first forested mountain biking trail system. Hmm. So we just opened the first project phase last October, and people are already riding their bikes in the woods. And so Seattle Parks is doing a lot of evaluation around those trails, how people interact, how pedestrians interact with bikes, and what it looks like to take a green space that is really mostly unused from a community perspective and needing much love in terms of restoration too and saying, okay, well, what can we do if we add trails in here? What can we do if we involve the community and their ideas? So it's constantly evolving, but right now we have walking trails and mountain biking trails and we're getting ready for phase two next year, which is going to be another almost mile mountain biking. In addition to other pedestrian accesses and trails. Right. How big a space are we talking about? 43 acres. Yeah, so big. Yeah, and it's forested. There's only one area at the top of the hill near Jefferson Golf Course that's open, and that's where the top of the trails are. So that's kind of a little field, and you can see some signage, and it points you in the right direction. Yeah. So listeners are thinking, man, 43 acres in the city, beautiful woods, Why wouldn't people have been using it? Like, what's the problem that the project is trying to solve and how did it even get started? Yeah, it's interesting, right? We have this idea of what wild spaces might look like, especially if there aren't humans in them and maybe they're going to be pristine or something. But the urban forested reality is that if there aren't humans interacting with the landscape, it is really a different picture. So when we began to become acquainted with Chiste, oh, 17 years ago, it was overrun with 
blackberry and ivy and it was almost nearly impassable to get through. You can imagine the ivy was actually growing from the ground story all the way up into the upper canopy and five feet in diameter and every tree had that reality. So it actually looked like a really dark canopy. And with all of those sorts of plants that really thrive when it's not a healthy ecosystem, it prevented a lot of the native ecology from growing and thriving. So we began to spark an imagination for what could this space be? I mean, an unfortunate reality, I think, when spaces aren't being interacted with in, I would say, positive ways is there are behaviors that start to thrive in the woods that are not going to be beneficial for the whole society. And that creates a culture of fear. So we began to get a pulse on this fear factor around the woods. So ecologically, it wasn't thriving. People were literally afraid of the woods. And it was in many ways preventing people from being able to access the amenities of the Rainier Valley. GC Green Space kind of is on the eastern flank of Beacon Hill, and there's a whole vibrant neighborhood on top of Beacon Hill that couldn't actually walk down to what would become the light rail. So early imaginations began to link together possibility. Like, what if, what if this space had trails? What if people could safely access nature here? What if people felt welcome instead of fear in the forest? What could happen? And 17 years later, I think we're still leaning into that imagination, but also seeing a part of that story actually coming to bear. To to the uninformed eye, you could walk into that space and not realize it wasn't a healthy ecosystem, right? I mean, everything's green and dense and lush. But when you talk about invasive species, when you talk about opportunistic species that are thriving in a place that they shouldn't be, what are we actually talking about? Like, What is the issue in terms of the ecology? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, it's a longer story, but it probably goes way back to a settler culture and settlers coming in and deforesting landscapes. So Chasty currently has a really strong population of big leaf maple, which are all around 120 years old. And that kind of aligns with a deforestation project that happened on this flank of land in the late 1800s. But there was no effort to replant anything. So a lot of the conifers would have come down. Big leaf maple are native, but they dominate. They dominate, dominate. And then they shade out any sort of native ground story. Also with settlers comes in a bunch of other plants that, again, opportunistically will take advantage of shade conditions. And that's where we see a lot of the blackberry and ivy growing in. They grow at a rapid rate, they cover the ground, they cover other native plants, and then in that way, they prevent even wildlife from being able to thrive because there's no longer access to food sources. It creates conditions that, I think about urban wildlife being like rats and raccoons, they thrive there, but you don't have a vibrant avian culture, so biodiversity of the birds really plummeted, but that story has shifted actually. Yeah, I'm just going off of the lifespan of the trees. So when we started the work, these trees are already at the end of their lifespan. So if you would look at the forest, you wouldn't actually think of that right away. 
But then you go in and you see that the ivy is climbing up the trees and actually choking them out. Mm. It's making their canopies a lot more narrow, so you don't see this full mushroom-looking tree like if you were to draw a cartoon of a tree. You can see it expanding out to the right and left. These are narrow maples already about to come down. Ivy's choking them out. So part of what our involvement has been is taking the ivy off of the trees and trying to at least give them the best lifespan that they can possibly get because they're going to come down no matter what. And they've been coming down. And on windy days, we'll hear crashes in the woods and these trees are already coming down. So trying to create a lifespan for these trees and also come in and plant the next generation of forest canopy. So every fall we come in and plant over a thousand plants and trees in Chisti. And so over the course of our involvement, we've planted over 17,000 plants and trees in there that are already starting to come up as the next tree canopy. Yeah. So term I hear a lot around this project and read about it online is community. Community implies that there's probably a lot of voices involved, right? We're in a dense urban area. I'm wondering, how do you go about listening to the different voices that care about this project or that have some kind of vested interest in what happens to the space? How does listening happen? I'd suggest that at least initially, there was a posture of listening to the land itself. And I don't say that lightly. There really was a couple years after we moved here where we would just attune to that forest. It was a posture of curiosity. It was listening. It was trying to learn. It was watching. It was witnessing and trying to get a sense of what possibly the spirit of this place could be longing for. I wouldn't use that language in all of our community contexts, but at least as the initiators of this community project, that was a posture that began it. And then it was initially beginning to reach out to Seattle Parks. It's a Seattle Parks land. We see this land being in a degraded state. What can we do? And then it was with those initial inquiries that we got connected to the Green Seattle Partnership Project, which is an effort to tap private citizens as a volunteer base to work with Seattle Parks and Forterra, which is a nonprofit conservancy organization, Mm -hmm. land conservancy, and kind of creating this triad that together forms the Green Seattle Partnership. We received training and education to begin the work of reaching out more broadly to the neighborhood. And early days had us canvassing, literally knocking on doors. I remember bringing the kids in wagons around to houses, just saying, hey, do you have an imagination for this space? We have an inkling of an idea. You want to talk? Let's have a community meeting. And so early times had us gathering in people's homes for community meetings where we just began to be curious together about the land. And increasingly, the idea, I mean, restoration, of course, was there, like, we've got to restore the woods, but there seemed to be something more wanted. And I think it was probably from the community, but again, from the land itself, that restoration was one thing, but so was recreation. Mm -hmm. This idea that we could recreate by being in the woods. And so what were plausible ideas to make that happen? So a pilot trail system on the southern 10 acres is what initially really kind of caught the imagination of the greater community. What if we in South Seattle, who historically has not had access 
safe and welcoming access to green spaces. What if we had a trail system? What if we had a loop that you could just walk on, play on, run on? What if we had trails that connected neighborhoods? What if we had trails that connected neighborhoods to the light rail in this vibrant Columbia City neighborhood? And that imagination got us funded for grants. And I think a lot of people began to light up around the idea that this was actually a right. We had a right to nature. And kiddos in the South End had a right to nature. And it really changed the energy around the story. It became more of an activism project, not just a restoration. Mm-hmm. And you think about common spaces, especially in the city, that don't require you to have an entry fee to get into them. And this is one of those unique spaces. And it's alive. It's alive with wildlife and biodiversity. And it is the thing that can create vibrancy. And so as the community organically came together in the early days, but it started to grow into its own thing and create its own momentum. And then it seemed like for part of it, we were kind of along for the ride. I want to hear more about listening and maybe what it meant to listen to the place itself, not just to the people, but to the forest itself. What does that mean? It really has been a process of learning to listen quite literally to the treescape, listening to the wind through the trees, listening to the rain through the trees. So becoming familiar with the oratory quality of the woods, but then, and through various experiences and encounters and learnings that I would have with various indigenous elders, I began to realize that there was deeper stories in the land, that this was a strata. There was a strata here of our current present time. There was a strata of what happened 120 years ago that would have deforested the landscape. There was a strata of settlers coming. There was the strata of this being Quatzich, the Duwamish name for the green and yellow forest. There was the strata of these deep time stories of the Duwamish people interacting with this land, hunting, foraging. And so through our restoration work, how could the restoration actually be in response to those deep time stories? You know, what we plant, so many native plants that have ethnobotanical qualities and learning about then how the Native peoples would have worked with these plants through food and medicine and clothing. And I think hoping that then our restoration practices were bringing us into right relationship with the place, with the spirit of the place. Those would be ways that I would listen. Ryan, how about you? How have you listened to the woods all these years? I mean, I remember when I was really young, I would look up to what Shikisi used to be and... I wasn't filled with a longing to go there because Ivy was covering all the trees. There were no trails in the first place in there. I didn't even think about going in there. And I think we started to view Chisi in that forest as more of a person. Like, what is happening? Like, this person is dying. Like, how can we help this? How can we help this growing community? How can we integrate more people to enjoy this space and what it's supposed to be. And I think that's where the project started and starting to take down all the ivies, starting to make trails, starting to build a new community. Now there's such a huge community of people 
that have worked together for so long and have now enjoyed so much time spending their day in this forest. Because 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you would not see sunlight through this forest at all. It was like a dark space. You wouldn't even want to spend time there. And now this community that we have helped build has transformed this forest into a really beautiful and loving place. Yeah. You bring up an interesting point in what you say, because on the one hand, we're talking about the community of ecology of the space, right? We want to get it in balance. We want the right parts of the ecology to be there in a sort of community. But it sounds like the project itself has actually created community around it as people gather together to try to bring their resources and interests that maybe they're driven to a deeper place in terms of knowing each other, caring for each other, being responsible for each other. Is that true? Does that have a sense that you, Elena? Yeah. And with the community, like what Mom was saying about we would have community meetings in our house, I would always look forward to that because I would get to see the people that I would be in the woods with. And by the time I remember going into the woods, like Orion said, if it was a person, when I met the person, I loved it because there was already sun and the birds were always singing and I could see wildlife and I love it still. I want to call attention to some language that you're using cautiously. On the one hand, you're speaking, Mary, of the spirit of the forest. I hear you, Orion, talking about considering the ecology, the place as a person, giving it rights as a person almost. I'm wondering how careful do you have to be with that language when you're talking about things in meetings like you just described. Are people coming around to that language as a whole, or is that something that just part of the community might share that understanding? I think that we've had to probably be sensitive to where we use certain kinds of language and in what context. We can imagine community meetings in our house, which might be a little bit more relaxed. And we have several people who have been a part of our core work who would have probably shared values that would come alongside similar terms. But we have other people who are just solely thinking from an ecological point of view and maybe not seeing an animate space. But we've also been in gymnasiums and the town hall and the mayor's offices. This project, because of its advocacy, has had us be in spaces where the conversation had to be quite a bit more nuanced. And it was interesting, though, there was a lot of resistance to the imagination to create access to GST. And it was predicated, the people who opposed it, was predicated on ideas that humans should not be in nature and humans should not be in GC. And there was, I think, some deeper social imaginations going on that if we were to open up the woods and somehow really bad things would start to happen. And I don't know, I think those concerns were all debunked. But I remember having to ultimately like not be so careful with my language just so that I could actually name that. And this would be more from a spiritual ecology perspective that humans are nature. You're creating a false dichotomy. And this false dichotomy is actually hurting the ecology of the forest. And it's hurting the human ecology as well, because we don't have all of the health benefits in our community because we don't have hyper-local access to nature. And so I always felt really excited when these moments would come to the fore where in these community meaning spaces, 
where maybe we would have been more parsing with our language, I could just be like, hold on a minute. We have got to stop thinking in such silos. We are nature. We belong in the woods. And then it takes good practice. Then it takes maybe some long-term practice of how to be in the woods well. And that's what we're all still learning together, mm. I think. Well, the language that you're using, I think, enables and empowers you to relate to the place in a certain way. I mean, I hear you, Orion, talking about loving the forest, and you also use that word. I think it's easier to love a persona of the forest, right? If you imagine it as a being or a community of beings, then just an objective tract of land. Would you say that that's part of what makes you want to be involved in the restoration? Yeah, for me, that's totally true. I also think that in the beginning when we were starting this project, a lot of families had very young kids at that point, And the idea of having access to a beautiful forest like this was one that they wanted to follow up on. So I think viewing the forest as more of a persona really helped shape what it is today and has really helped form the community as well. I can imagine. One other question I have from something you said, Mary, you mentioned the Duwamish several times, and that's a people in a culture that itself is seeking restoration and help and recognition. I'm wondering, did they or do they play any part in the project? Was their voice part of the conversation? Yeah, so it's interesting how much our consciousness, I think, has evolved in the last 15 years, because I think it would be true that 15 years ago, we weren't conscious of that so much. We were just thinking Seattle Parks was as far as we would need to go. It wasn't until much later, I would say probably seven to eight years, when I think as a whole, the conversation around reconciliation and restitution began to shift kind of the conversational landscape in Seattle as a whole, that we began to wake up to like, oh my goodness, wait, there's so much more to what this restoration is about. And it was then where ethnobotany courses began to be offered through the Green Seattle Partnership. And I was taking those and that got me more in relationship with the Duwamish tribe. And it was also around that same time where the restoration work in Chisti had gotten to the point and we had trails now in the Southern 10 acres that it was almost becoming like a venue. And we were hosting community events and one highlight event that we had done pre-COVID for years was a lantern walk in early November where we would have lantern making workshops in the community for the weeks leading up to this one event where in the darkness, gathering darkness, we would come together as a very broad neighborhood. Like this would include Rainier Vista and Columbia City. And we would light our lanterns and go in the woods together, singing songs and hearing stories. And we began to integrate storytellers from the Duwamish tribe who would come into the woods and there'd be these story stops or story stations. And it was, I think, a really beautiful opportunity for our greater community to really encounter the deeper story of the place, the story of the Duwamish people, and then how our present stories interact with it. And I think that's ongoing. I know that there are conversations with Seattle Parks about how to do restoration best practices that are in alignment with traditional indigenous knowledge and working with the tribes on that. But it's a story of probably missteps, right? You know, it's just what it's like doing restoration. It's hard work and it's not always done right. And you 
find out that you're misnaming things or you're calling something something that promotes xenophobia. <laughs> it's such a learning process. And it's amazing, I think, what the woods can teach us in that way around cultural restitution and cultural restoration. When we can do that interspecies, I think it gives us uh, embodied practice around how to do that with one another in really profound ways. So we're still practicing being in good relationship and being good caretakers of the land, I suppose. I'm interested, Joel, in the family dynamic. What has it meant for your whole family to be involved in this project together? It's been a huge part of our family, the kids. Orion was two when we officially started. Now Orion is 17. And so everybody has grown up in and around Chiste, in and around our involvement. And like Anna was saying, it had many years of just people coming over and in and out. When we first started the project and were green-lighted as a group, a friends of Chiste Green Space at Mountain View group, they showed up at our house and they dropped off a job box, a huge job box with tools on the side of our house. And then they gave us the big thumbs up. They're like, go for it. So for years, people are coming, grabbing tools, other forest stewards and neighbors, friends in the neighborhood, hosting their own work parties, coming over, grabbing tools. Our front yard was the staging ground for all of these work parties. We closed off our street for the lantern walks that Mary was just talking about. Think about when SPU students would roll up like 200 deep up our street. With buses. With buses. Yeah. And the kids have just kind of known that to be what life is. We have a clip of Orion and River on a skateboard going down the hill underneath the tent as everyone is gathering for the work party. And they survived. We also have a picture of them getting covered in mud in the woods. And so they've been a huge part. The kids have been a huge part. It's part of our family. The woods have been a part of our family. It's cheesy. Everybody knows it and has a shared relationship with it. Birthday parties have been hosted. Oh, yeah. I think about the wild. Star Wars birthday parties. (laughs) You know? The Ewoks. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, you mentioned River. We should acknowledge that there's another member of the family here. Two others. Two. Two others. That's right. Two others. River and... Cannon, the youngest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I want to follow up a little bit on that family question. I really had a kind of a moving image when you talked about being in your house full of people all coming over around this common cause. I'm wondering how has involvement made your family different? How has it impacted your family, would you say? Well, for me, we would do lantern walks, and there was also another thing called the Clementine and Candy Cane Hunt, and those would always be things that I would be looking forward to, and so would the work parties, because I'd be like, are my friends going to come over? Are they? And then I'd get really excited, and then... Usually we would end up planting two trees and then running back home and eating donuts and like pouring hot cocoa mix into our mouth and then the water. <laughs> but you got those two trees planted, two right? Trees. <laughs> yeah, that's what you have to do to get kids involved is like yeah. make it enchanted, right? <laughs> Enter the magic. What about you, Ryan? How do you think it's impacted the family? 
I think it's really brought us together. This whole project has been all of us together. And mostly when I was younger, we would have work parties every Saturday. So we would wake up every morning with a tent in our driveway, knowing that there would probably be like 30 people there. There'd be donuts. And it brought us together, brought the community together. I also probably ate a rather unhealthy amount of sugar on those days. But it was so much fun for me to play with the younger kids, play in the mud, just to be in this space that was being transformed into something that could bring the community together. And I think at that age, I didn't really notice that that much. But me being happy and me looking forward to the Saturdays where I'd be in the woods, that used to be a woods that no one would really want to go into, that unconsciously I felt welcomed there. And I think that was a really amazing thing. And now we get to ride our bikes together in the woods. Yeah. And so we're doing an after-school bike club and bringing more kids out in the woods and having fun together, trying not to wipe out. (laughs) (laughs) So what impact has the project had then on the space itself? Thinking back to what it was, thinking forward to what it is and what it will be, What are some of the obvious changes that maybe give you hope to keep on with this? Yeah. Well, again, we kind of have this 43-acre woods that's dissected by an arterial. And the southern 10 acres has only pedestrian trails. So maybe I'll just speak to that. And it's those trails that actually our home is like a trailhead into that portion of the forest. So what we see now on the daily are pedestrians and people who are going to school and people who are going to work and they've clearly just come through the woods because there are now these trails through the woods. In the afternoons, we see kids returning home, coming up the street, entering the woods, going home. People after work going through the woods. And then we also see so many people with their dogs, people running. When we're in the woods, it is a popular place for people to come and be and enjoy this green space, this green skate. And we've seen the trees that we planted 15 years ago now at a mid-canopy range. So they're no longer just little babies. Your eyes are seeing them in the mid-canopy. And as more of the big leaf maples fall and we see these other ones grow up, like we're watching the forest grow. And so that's totally inspiring, totally encouraging. And I imagine you're planting species of evergreens, right? Yes. Are transforming the forest to what it ought to be, really. Correct, yeah. And lots of conifers. It's interesting, though, even in the span of the last three to five years, as in the greater Seattle area, we have witnessed increasing temperatures due to climate change. Western red cedar, who has been a primary species for the last 10,000 years in this bioregion, is no longer thriving. So it's interesting to acknowledge that for 10 years, we were planting so many western red cedar, and now we're beginning to shift. We're getting more hemlock. Seattle Parks is seeing our zone shift to the point where we're likely to be planting more trees like Northern California. So it's changing, and it's interesting to be witnessing the rate of that change. About the trails, like what I've seen change, I've really seen the mountain bike trails because... That side of Cheesy always was kind of what, what side are the main trails on? Uh, Mountain View? Mountain yeah. View side? 
what that side used to be is kind of how I felt about the mountain bike trail side. But once the trails started coming, I was getting excited and I'm going to be able to bike here soon. So it became more of a space that I enjoyed than kind of had fear about because I didn't really know it was over there. But when we started putting more trails, it was really nice and I got to explore it more. You guys are both old enough, Anna and Orion, to be looking at the future. And obviously you pay a lot of attention to issues of climate change and to what often is painted as a fairly bleak climate future. I'm wondering what the two of you are thinking about the future and maybe more importantly, how you're feeling about the future. And if being involved with this project has actually made any difference in shaping that way you look forward. Well, for me, I have hope that we will be able to solve climate change in our generation. And I think that if more people can find the love of the forest as much as we have, then I think that will definitely benefit our climate in the future. Uh-huh. Because I feel like there are people who are only seeing the forest as a resource to use to build things and not as a place to experience and to love. And I think if people would just take just a little bit of their time just to experience the woods and to find the connection with the trees, then I think that will develop a relationship with the forest that will help our generation keep forests alive and to grow more forests and to plant more trees in places where there has been deforestation. Yeah, I have hope that that will happen in our generation. But you in it. Yeah, I think what Orion said and... Having forests in the city is rare, so having this gives access to people who usually wouldn't have that, and it can give them an idea that we don't want to lose places like this. We want to keep them healthy and make more and plant trees. Well, in some ways, when you talk about access, the fact is a lot of people in urban contexts don't have places to connect. But you're right, I think, that connection is what empowers and inspires people to act, to love, to care, and respond to need. Do you find that people that you know in your friend group have had enough of that kind of experience where they feel hopeful, or do you find that your friends sometimes struggle with feeling hopeless about a future which they maybe don't think they can change? I know in my class at school, there's definitely different opinions on what the future will hold for our generation. And there are a lot of opinions on what will be the deciding factor on what will solve climate change, whether it's electric cars, whether it's green roofs on buildings or pollution in the ocean, if that's the main thing. But I definitely think trees are so important. They suck in CO2. That is such a big thing. And I think if everyone can just work together on the little things, Mm -hmm. then I think we will have a brighter future. Yeah, I think you're bringing up a really important point that we can all resolve as individuals to make a difference, but we have to actually look at the fact that our impact can be made so much greater if we're doing it in community. Even the community of a family, I think, makes your work more powerful than it would be just if you wanted to do a tree project on your own. So I'm really loving that sense of the value of community as an element of earth healing in some ways. I'm wondering, Joel, if you could talk about the future and 
I wonder if there are obstacles or places of resistance to walking forward with this dream for restoration. Like what stands in the way? Yeah. Right now, we have overcome a lot of the restraints to getting the project done. And it's been about a decade of navigating conversations with the city, with community members, figuring out the design for the space, what's appropriate for the city, introducing new recreation, biking for the parks department. A lot of those conversations have already happened. So in a sense, I feel like some of our restraints have been reconciled. And we have a project that has just actually gone through the final hurdle in terms of permitting for getting the second phase built next year. So in terms of the project itself, I'm really feeling good about, okay, I can see that we're close to actually getting all the trails that we have planned actually built and creating these access points uh, for the community to access it. Then beyond that, I really feel like it sets it up to realize a whole new potential for the community, for Beacon Hill and for Seattle at large. One thing that really helped us with our meetings at home is beer. We had <laughs> free beer from yeah. Georgetown Brewing. I'd be about the donuts. <laughs> no, but it's good to know that Roger from Georgetown Brewing, he came to one of these early meetings and he saw how contentious these neighbors were. And so he came up to me after that and he said, you guys are going to need a lot of beer if you're going to make it through this. And so he gave us free beer for all of our community meetings, which was great. As you're talking, I'm thinking about how listeners are listening to us. And they may be asking the question like, man, I wish I could do that. Like, I know spaces like this that need healing, that need involvement, that need to be integrated with a community. What would you say to them if that's what they maybe had the seed of a dream for? Something like that. How bad do you want it? (laughs) (laughs) Because it takes work, obviously. It takes a lot of work. And... In retrospect, I think there are a lot of missteps that cost us years. Sure. And each space is unique and has unique potential to offer that community. So I think you have to start with what's unique. Mm-hmm. What's unique about your place? And what's the story of that place? How does it interact with your community? Mm-hmm. And then look at your idea and like, how can this thing come to be? Look at those restraints and what is the value of those restraints? What's the value of those voices? Because... You're going to need to integrate them. Mm-hmm. They're going to come to the table. And the sooner that you can look at it from a larger, more of a living systems perspective, let's see this place and how it interacts with the community, how it interacts with the city, and how can we create value at all levels with my idea. And if you can name those things at the outset, you're going to have a much greater chance of getting your project completed Because when people hear about it, they're going to see the benefit for themselves instead of, in our case, maybe being fearful of what might happen. This is going to come into fruition. Yeah. And it sounds like the model you're describing, the strategy, I'll call it, is that the more people you can get on board, the more people you listen to, the more of the contextual factors you take into account, the more people are going to own and love the project, right? Like if anyone came with a bulldozer and started at the edge of Chisti, I imagine neighbors would be out there with picks and shovels and standing in the way and defending this place, which has become such a part of community. They own it. They love it. Mm -hmm. Well, 
this podcast has listeners from all over the world, and they probably are wondering, what am I going to do with this that I'm hearing? You know, what about this story makes sense for me? And Joe, you've talked about what the implications are, but Orion, I wonder if you could talk about that. What would you say to listeners who are listening from contexts all over the world based on what you've learned? Well, I would say if you really care about a place, then it is definitely worth fighting for. And especially with like a forest, if there's a forest near you where there's not a lot of community access, then that is something to work for and it will totally benefit your community. Mm -hmm. It'll bring people together. There is a whole community waiting to be formed through that forest. And that is something that can be done all over the world and it'll bring a lot of people together. Yeah. And how about you? What would you say to people listening? I think if you find something you enjoy outside, like if you go on a hike somewhere else and you really find that you love it, and then you come back and you realize, I could actually do something here. I could make something accessible that other people would enjoy and they would have the same experience that I experienced. So you could go out and then come back and realize there is more potential when you realize. And it sounds like you're advising people to really find those places of love in their heart. Like, what do you care about? Because it's a lot easier to build that into a place if it's coming from you and not sort of an external project. Yeah. Mary, what would you say to global listeners? I think I'd probably say to the global listeners something along the lines of what I say to my kids, which is always look up and look out. So look up, you know, I have teenage kids. So it's like, get your face off of your phone and look up. What do you see? And what's the beauty and the wonderment that is around you? And Ryan's looking like, oh, wow, he's really good about this. But still, right, there's this... Because I mean, your mom huge... never is on the phone. <laughs> no, no, never is. No, right, She's right. never on Instagram. Right. <laughs> and yeah, so we have these competing interests, right? And so technology is a huge competition with the real world, which would be something else that I'd say to my kids. Is, do you want your reels or do you want the real world? And what's worth fighting for? And... I think both Ryan and Anna have said this, but it's like the relationship. So if some place has sparked you, maybe it's a watershed, maybe it's a mountain top experience, maybe it's a forest. But if something has created a spark in you that makes you feel really alive, different than how you feel when you are just watching reels after reels after reels, take note of that and see where that can be engaged locally. Because I think that's really the key factor is if we are only going out to have these kinds of experiences or going away or having a drive, I don't think that's what our meant forness. That's not our meant forness. We're meant to be having these sorts of relational encounters with the more than human world on the daily. And our modern expression of Western life has really siloed that. And I think we get to break that down and we get to say, you know what? I want to be able to go for a 10-minute walk in the woods right from my front door. Everybody should. And so how do we redesign our neighborhoods? How do we redesign our cities? Chiste has become that kind of model where 
people are looking at what does it look like to have neighborhoods that have access to green spaces within a 15-minute walk from my front door. It changes us. It's a slow growth change, just like the trees grow slow, but it has huge implications for how we live our lives. And so look up and look out and engage the real world instead of the reals world. (laughs) (laughs) We've been in conversation with the de Young family about their work of community organizing for the restoration of the Chiste Green Space in Seattle. To find out more about this project and to see family photos of the DeYoung family in action over the years, check out this episode's show notes. I am Forrest Inslee, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amadon, and our producer is Dave Olfers. Timothy Connor is our editor, and Forrest Reed is the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Colleen Megerly, and Jocelyn Gentry is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast. <laughs>